Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, the regulations on federal contractors keep piling on. Plus, the premier accident investigator is urged to tighten up its management practices. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Biden administration's zero-trust strategy and implementation plan is filled with objectives and deadlines. The 19 actions help outline the North Star that agencies must strive for over the next year. The real change that the Office of Management and Budget is driving through this new approach to cybersecurity has little to do with technology or even new capabilities. Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, tells Executive Editor Jason Miller during day one of Federal News Network's 2023 Cyber Leaders Exchange about how these cyber initiatives are doing more than driving data and budget priorities. We're just starting to kind of see the, the culture change and the you know, the pickup uh, for different agencies. And I, I guess like my favorite thing to hear sometimes from a CIO or a CISO is, you know, I'm doing this because it's the right thing and I want to do it. You know, not because you told me. And it's like, that's great, actually, right? Um, because it means that I think we are on the right path and we, we got it right. And I think we got it right because we did engage the community before we wrote it, before we issued it. We did public comment, as you may recall. And we obviously like wrote it along with our agency partners. And I think by and large, it's getting traction because it, because it is what agencies want to be focusing on, right? And And know that we need to be. But it's put structure around that. It's put timelines. It's put pressure. It's gotten us more money than I think we would have gotten. And, you know, the word that I've been using is momentum. It's like it's really moving us. And, you know, you all of our data, all of our metrics through FISMA are, are aligned around measuring the progress. Um, we're, we're seeing movement, you know, tactical things, but really important things like MFA and encryption. Like we absolutely over the two years of, of staring at that and putting a lot of high level of accountability and agency on that, we're seeing serious movement. And in the end, where there's still challenges, those are at least known now to the agency so that they can like manage that risk, accept it where needed, and make new investments around addressing it. So you know, overall, I would say lots of progress tactically, but culturally is the most important thing here. We're, we're on a road that I think will just tack maybe left to right after that three-year period concludes. But I predict we're going to stay on this path because it's one that everybody sees as the right path. That is until the next path is uh, opened up because sure. of cyber hackers and, changes. And, but we're, that's, and we're always open to yep. that, and we need to be some level of agile throughout all of this. And you've been very clear about that. You're not, you're never done. It's, it's that's why we call it a journey. Let me go back to a couple of things you said. You said you mentioned you're, you're tracking pr- progress against the strategy. Agencies had short term things, and then they had the longer term. I know you're not necessarily tracking publicly this progress, meaning there's not a big dashboard that I can go look at. But I'm sure you have dashboards internally. What what are some of those metrics generally you're tracking? How much they're doing endpoint detection response? How many or how many people are, have MFA fully installed? What what are some of those metrics? You're right. It's a mix. Like we do have um, performance.gov ratings of how everyone's doing, which are based on the FISMA metrics. Most of what we're tracking in M2209, the zero trust strategy, are in FISMA metrics, and those are publicly available. But then you're right. There's a number of sort of like, did you do something or not? Like on the Password policies, um, like where you know, how far down the road are you in in moving away from these kind of old password policies that are just 
getting cracked by open source tools in a couple hours, right? So it's like we've got to we've got to uh, move beyond that. And so we've been we have been tracking internally just sort of some of the action, single sign-on consolidation, things like that, right? And they, look, overall, you know, we're making a ton of progress, and we at least understand generally where agencies haven't been able to hit those targets. Why? And we've put the accountability at senior levels. The CIO and the CISO very much are tracking what the remaining challenges are. And frankly, I'll tell you, you know, I'm very happy about this. Deputy secretaries are fairly fluid in, you know, where they're at in their zero trust implementations. But the ones that, that I mentioned before where we put the most attention have been phishing resistant MFA and encryption at rest and transit. And look, I mean, I think in part it was strategic to pick a couple of big things and important things that are pretty effective in stopping adversaries in the tracks. But we've also been measuring and tracking the progress of logging and, as you mentioned, endpoint detection response capabilities. So, you know, it's really uh, a lot, quite a number of things that we've been tracking the progress on. And, you know, look, I mean, like, like you said, you're parroting me, but I'll say it again. It's true. Like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think we will be done, but we, you know, because of our adversaries are going to keep innovating and you've got generative AI and, and new trends will continue to come and we'll continue to have to adjust to that. However, we're on a good path and we're moving in the right direction and we are able to and better, far better positioned than we were when we came, when I came in to, to be able to tack to some of those new TTPs that we see. All right. Here's the hardest question so far. Sure. Remember it's so far. <laughs> During the Obama administration, maybe it was even end of the Bush administration, there was a someone in your position or maybe even higher up in the White House said, we're going to kill passwords dead. Can't remember the person mm-hmm. offhand. Have you killed password? Are they dead yet? How close oh, are they to being dead? Not yet. Not yet. Uh, closer? Closer. <laughs> the death, they, they hear I, the death I, spirals cer- coming? Yeah, cer- certainly closer. I mean, we put, in some, we put in some of the most aggressive policy direction in M2209, and I really credit my colleague and partner, Eric Mill, you know, in the Office of Management and Budget for just pointing out that, you know, that modern techniques are cracking federal you know, password policies, not just federal, most organizations everywhere kind of have password policies that still are sort of designed for, I don't know, I guess humans trying to crack them, not the machines and automation that are actually cracking them. And it, it was time to say, like, you know, we've, we've got to, to you know, get rid of these old policies where people are just switching one digit and you're not actually helping security by having all these rotations. People are doing weird things with, like, where they store those, right? It's just, it doesn't work. So I think we still hold that principle of like wanting to do what you said. <laughs> I'll let somebody else. Somebody said I'll let it. the quote. Yeah, somebody yes. said some smart individual wants to say that. <laughs> you know, but like I, I think that's right, and and we're making good progress towards it. But look, you know, it's it's a it's a big uh, ocean tanker that you're turning because people are still reliant on these policies while they get uh, strong MFA in place. Which I was going to go right there next. This is why MFA is so important. I mean, I think you see this. Uh, I've used this example before, but you know that when MFA is real is when you go to the gas station, put your credit card and ask for your zip code. Because if someone has stolen your credit card, they may not know your zip code. And that's a a lighter version, but still it's MFA. It's a second factor that only potentially you know. So where are we with MFA? Do you see, again, it's hard to say every agency is different. It's hard to say across the government, but do you have any feeling of this is where we are stronger, we are better today than we were Six months ago, eighteen months ago, twenty-four months ago, in a number of places. I mean, I think when you when you look at kind of network layer PIV implementation, you know, or other FIDO two methods, you know, we're we're now breaking out and tracking 
phishing-resistant MFA versus SMS-based or, or other methods. We're tracking that on implementation by systems in a lot of cases, high-value assets. So at a system level, how done are you on the system, not just sort of in your enterprise how many people are, are, are covered, which sort of used to be the old way. And what we realized is if we're going to get fidelity and drive accountability using data, we're going to have to get specific on a system-by-system basis and point out that you know, if you've got 7% of users accepted, that you're not done, <laughs> right? You don't get credit for that in our system of, of record here, which is why the, the numbers have been slower to come up because actually to work through those challenges has taken us longer. But I'd say that we're taking on the last 10-mile problems, right? And, and those are the hardest ones. I think prior administrations have made good progress on this. And we've really pushed, and when you look at enterprise users, like we're, we're very high now, Many, many, many agencies are over well over 90% in MFA implementation across the board and are tracking and pushing for and want to make that phishing-resistant MFA in all cases. And then you get to the application layer, and people are understanding that, as we directed in M2209, you also need to have phishing-resistant MFA in, in place of the application. So we, we, we can't just rely on this sort of perimeter-authenticated-in kind of access to all resources right, like model anymore as that's like a big principle of the zero trust strategy and that we've got to have this as you authenticate into all of these critical resources individually to have that kind of segmented approach of protection. So, yeah, I mean, making a lot of progress, but also, you know, you're into some hard use cases now where some of the laggards are maybe uh, there's old contracts in place and that need to be updated. Maybe that vendor is requiring new funds to implement it and the agency's in a negotiation over over that. We've definitely heard that in a lot of use cases because there's a lot of contractor-run systems in the U.S. government, actually. Finances, but, you know, we've done a lot to put money towards this, but still, in certain cases, projects need to be planned, things like that. But, you know, overall, we feel really good about the progress we've made on this front. That was Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, talking with Executive Editor Jason Miller during day one of Federal News Network's 2023 Cyber Leader Exchange. Tune in for day two of the exchange featuring cyber experts from CISA, the White House, and NASA starting today at 1 p.m. Still to come on Federal News Network, the premier accident investigator is urged to tighten up its management practices. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The National Transportation Safety Board is often among the first to arrive when an airplane or train crashes. Its expertise is renowned. But the Government Accountability Office found the NTSB needs to tighten up its own performance planning, in particular connecting its strategic goals with its mission of transportation safety. The Federal Drive got more from the GAO's Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues, Heather Krause. We initiated this work at the request of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, the chair, as well as the chair of the Aviation Subcommittee. You know, Congress over the years has expressed some concerns about the timeliness of NTSB's accident investigation reports. So, the, you know, quality of some of their accident investigation data 
and really whether they have sufficient staff to conduct its work. And so we were asked to do a fairly broad review looking at various aspects of NTSB operations and management. And so you, you note the you know strategic planning and sort of performance planning was certainly one area that we looked at. But the other areas we focused on as well was looking at you know how are they using or sort of improving their ability to use data for decision making. We also looked at you know workforce planning and are they ensuring that their workforce has the skills it needs to carry out its mission, as well as looking at some of their policies and procedures related to the security of their information systems and data. That's really important because the NTSB has been viewed as the gold standard, and not just in the United States, but worldwide, for the ability to assess and figure out what happened when something went wrong in aviation going back many years. They are often called in for international disasters that did not even involve the United States or a U.S. carrier because of what they know. So it sounds like if they're not careful, that could get a little tarnished. I mean, I think there's a number of things that the NTSB has done to improve in the areas that we looked at. Around the area of performance planning in particular, you know, we did find we were looking specifically at are they meeting the content requirements of and sort of the federal content requirements of some of their performance planning documents like strategic planning, their annual performance plan, their annual performance reports. And so, you know, those types of requirements are really important for agencies like NTSB to follow because they can help us hold those agencies accountable for achieving results. And so in some instances, we did find that they had carried out those activities, but they didn't necessarily include a description of those activities in those documents. We were really looking at the documents and what they contain. But we did find some areas of improvement in particular and really what are fundamental tools to federal performance management. You know, you had mentioned is, is establishing strategic goals that really align with their mission. They established strategic goals, and that was really targeted around operational efficiency, process improvements, and preparedness for emerging technologies. You know, those are really important efforts, but, you know, what you want to do to ensure your activities within an agency or supporting your mission is really have those strategic goals linking to the mission and ensuring that they support and connect to broader outcomes the agency hopes to achieve. I guess it's fair to say then that in the type of work that they do, accident investigations and coming up with causes, which lead to improvements in safety for whatever systems involve their trains or planes and so on, that there is a need to keep up with technological advances in maybe forensics, in aeronautics, in I don't know, whatever it is that goes into these particular accidents and happenings, that they do need to stay current. And so that even if they understand that, somehow it has to be tied to that safety mission. And you found that sometimes they sounded like nice strategic goals, but they weren't tied directly to safety. Right. So I think, you know, an NTSB in, in commenting on our report did acknowledge some of the steps that they're looking to do to take to try to respond to our recommendation, but then also make those links and address some other issues that we found in terms of those content requirements. We're speaking with Heather Krause. She's Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And is the issue that they just simply didn't do the paperwork right for government standards in writing strategic plans? Or was the thought really missing for that connection between strategic goals and and mission goals? I mean, I think there were a couple of different deficiencies we found in terms of those content requirements not being fully met. And so in some of those instances, they had carried out the activities, but just hadn't put that into the plan. So as an example, strategic plans should really have how the agency's strategic goals and objectives incorporate input from congressional consultations. You know, NTSB did speak to us about how they had obtained input from Congress in developing its strategic plan, but that wasn't in kind of the plan itself. So that's something that they can, you 
you know, work to work to improve. In terms of some of the other areas, which are a little more, you know, fundamental to, you know, ensuring their progress being made to achieving the mission. One example was, you know, they had annual performance plan goals for fiscal year 2023, along with some, you know, related indicators. But what we found is the majority of those goals, you know, weren't quantifiable or measurable, which doesn't meet the requirements. A lot of them were really, you know, most of those were about completing a task or creating a process, which makes it difficult to engage gauge progress over time, like progress towards NTSB's goal of establishing like a repeatable capital planning process, for example. And getting to some of the substantive issues here, they have modal offices, aviation, highway, marine, and of course, pipelines, hazardous materials. And the number of staff is surprisingly low. There's not even a couple hundred people in the whole place that look at these things. Talk more about the human capital issues and human capital planning that they need to do because everything they do comes down to really smart people looking through wreckage. Yeah, I mean, people is is a, a large resource for the NTSB to carry out their mission and their work. You know, we found that the NTSB had taken some recent steps to determine whether its workforce, you know, had the skills it needed to carry out the agency's mission. But what we found was those efforts, you know, don't provide a comprehensive information on the skills that the staff need how many staff, you know, have those skills and where those skill gaps exist. And so some of the things that they have done, you know, in 2022, NTSB issued a survey and held listening sessions with their staff to identify training needs, but that, you know, those efforts didn't include all mission critical staff as leading practices would really recommend. And so in addition, NTSB, you know, doesn't have a consolidated inventory of current staff skills, you know, without having that kind of information about, you know, what are the skills you need across, you know, all your mission critical occupations and staff, as well as what the skills they currently have, you know, NTSB is really hampered in its ability to identify where they have those skill gaps and and how to fill them. And it's not like they have to look across a population of 12,000 either here. Again, it's not even a couple 100 people on the expert. So just review then your top line recommendations and did they agree with most of them? Yeah, absolutely. So we ended up making six recommendations across the the various areas, which included things like working to meet those content requirements in those three performance planning documents, working to really assess the the skills needed, as well as the skills that staff currently have to better understand the skill gaps, as well as improve the use of labor cost data, something that they've been working on for a while. NTSB didn't take a specific position on our recommendations, but stated that our report really reinforces the areas that their leadership team has been actively targeting to improve. They also pointed out a number of activities that they're taking to respond to our recommendations. All right. So this has real consequences. Would an example be, say, in the skills gap 40 years ago, if you were examining a plane crash, you looked at certain things. In the most recent famous incidents of that software system that was aboard the Boeing planes, that capability, that that whole domain of technology was not even extant on planes at one time. That would be an example of where they would need to have their staff expertise keep up with what the latest things are, in, in this case, aviation, versus what they might have had to know 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, the the advances in transportation-related technologies, as well as the growth in the transportation sector, make it that much more important that the NTSB understand the skills that it has and that they're most efficiently using their resources. Heather Krause is Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Fly with the federal drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come on Federal News Network, federal long-term care insurance options are coming back. Brace yourself. But first, the regulations on federal contractors keep piling on. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs, part of the Labor Department, has gotten White House go-ahead for what our next guest calls a significant expansion of data that contractors must report. It's all in a new schedule letter and itemized listing. To unravel it for us, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke with attorney Andrew Turnbull, who's a partner at Morrison Forrester. What is a scheduling letter and itemized listing? What are we talking about here? Sure. So that is the letter that OFCCP sends to federal contractors at the beginning of OFCCP audit. So it essentially requires contractors to turn over certain items of information uh, at the outset of an audit. Uh, and then there's a number of other percolations within audits that OFCCP goes. And what do you think they're doing differently now? What are they trying to do that they haven't done in prior audits? Yeah, so so the new scheduling letter, and there's an itemized listing that includes a lot of information that federal contractors have to turn over to OFCCP, has significantly expanded the types of information contractors have to provide to OFCCP in several notable ways. So one is compensation. So in prior years, contractors had to provide OFCCP with employee-level compensation information uh, related to their affirmative action plan that's being reviewed. Now OFCCP is requiring contractors to provide two years of that data. They're also requiring contractors to provide any of the factors that are used to make compensation decisions or for selections or compensation at that site, and also any of their policies uh, related to compensation practices or procedures. And if contractors don't have those, they have to tell OFCCP that they do not have that information. Another item related to compensation that's new here is that contractors at the outset of an audit will have to provide OFCCP with its regulatory required compensation analysis. And that's been an issue that OFCCP has already issued a directive on and that contractors are you know, in the process of preparing for, but they will now have to provide that at the outset of an audit. Another new item for the scheduling letter here is that contractors will have to provide OFCCP for the first time information about their use of technology-based selection procedures, including the use of AI tools. Now, in recent years, OFCCP and EOC have undertaken various efforts to try to regulate and investigate technology-based selection tools like AI that contractors have used in selection decisions. And and OFCCP has traditionally sought to investigate employment tests. But this will be the first time that OFCCP is officially requiring contractors to provide information at the outset of audits on that type of information. One other significant change here, and there's a couple of other notable ones, but I'll just mention one other one briefly, is that the itemized listing also expands the information contractors have to provide on their affirmative action plans and how those plans are implemented, including, you know, any type of information in terms of if they've identified areas of underrepresentation, what are they doing specifically to address those for whether that's females, minorities, individuals with disabilities, protected veterans. So this, in, in a nutshell, this, this scheduling letter is a game changer for contractors. And just out of curiosity, if they don't like your affirmative action plan, can they do anything about it or they just want to know? Certainly they can. OFCCP has regulations that require contractors to follow certain steps in order to create affirmative action plans. And there are certain requirements that contractors have to meet to create these plans. Now, there's a lot of flexibility uh, because contractors are all different size and shapes. And so 
you know, contractors uh, have some flexibility in how they create these plans, but if they don't do them in accordance with the regulations, OFCCP can certainly find a compliance violation. But, but certainly the bigger ticket issue for OFCCP is looking at employment decisions like compensation, terminations, hires, and promotions to, decide, to determine if there's any type of statistically significant impact uh, based on race or gender. They spend a lot of time in audits and looking at that. And some of the new information that OFCCP is requesting in the scheduling letter uh, will help OFCCP investigate those issues. In other words, they're looking for a way to impute motive from data outcomes. Correct. We're speaking with attorney Andrew Turnbull. He's a partner at Morrison Forster. In your opinion, just given what's going on in the whole affirmative action question nationally, and we're seeing this in other parts of federal contracting, particularly at the SBA, which has suspended 8A program because one court ruling said that you can't infer that a company is necessarily disadvantaged because of the race makeup of the ownership. So could that spill over to here? I mean, is this supportable legally anymore, do you think? Certainly in the current landscape, it is. You know, the Supreme Court decision that came out for Harvard and UNC related to college admissions and affirmative action in that space. And that is governed by different laws that are at play here for workplace affirmative action programs. In fact, for workplace affirmative action programs, you're not supposed to actually consider race or any other protected characteristic to make employment decisions. Affirmative action for federal contractors is more about reaching out and eliminating barriers and providing equal opportunity in employment for different various groups. Okay, got it. And so then what are you advising contractors to do here? This sounds like a pretty heavy lift in terms of just information gathering and compliance activity. Sure. So I think contractors definitely are going to have to review their audit preparation strategies and affirmative action practices to ensure that they are prepared to timely respond to these new audit requirements. One of the things that OFCCP said in this new scheduling letter is that they are not going to provide extensions to the 30-day time frame to respond to the scheduling letter uh, unless there's extraordinary circumstances. And when they say extraordinary circumstances, they really mean that. So contractors are going to have to show that they have some type of medical leave for a key personnel or some type of of some type of emergency situation like a fire or an earthquake or something like that to say, hey, we need more time to respond to this. So what that means for contractors, they have to really think ahead and prepare for this. And so some specific action items that I think contractors really have to consider if they're not already doing this, they need to closely review their employment decisions and selection tools, including any compensation, hiring, promotions, or terminations. And they need to review that under the attorney-client privilege well before an audit starts to see if there's any potential issues that they need to address or, or rectify, because that's going to be very hard to do in the course of an audit. They also should take a very close look at compensation, because obviously OFCCP is continuing to look at that. And contractors, in light of this new scheduling letter, need to really focus on the factors affecting compensation and determine whether those are electronically maintained? And if not, do they need to be for defense purposes? What are their compensation policies and practices? Are those documented? How would they present these to OFCCP? So all of those issues have to be thought through well in advance of an audit. Contractors will also need to think about their affirmative action plans proactively and, and make sure that they retool their plans in light of this new scheduling letter. And sometimes that will require meeting with their vendors and internal stakeholders to make sure that they have the right documents and, and policies and procedures in place. And then finally, this obviously, OFCCP is an agency that likes documentation. So this is going to require contractors to document a lot of their practices to show their compliance with this. And they're going to have to do that well ahead of time. Did they take anything off the itemized listing? They did not. They only added to it. 
<laughs> All right. Well, that's kind of what you hear pretty much from throughout government. And do you have any evidence that OFCCP is increasing the number of audits it's doing? Yeah. So I think over the last couple of years, we've seen a little bit of a decline in the number of new audits that OFCCP has issued. And, and some of that is due to the pandemic. Some of it's due to the change in administration. But I think that now we're seeing a more of an uptick in audits and we are seeing new audits being released and OFCCP becoming much more active in audits. So I think we're going to see that trend continuing, particularly with this new scheduling letter. I think it just gives OFCCP more tools in its arsenal. Attorney Andrew Turnbull is a partner at Morrison Forrester. We'll post this interview along with a link to his blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, federal long-term care insurance options are coming back. Brace yourself. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Federal employees have not been able to purchase long-term care insurance for the past couple of months. That's because the Office of Personnel Management suspended the program, pending the new plans and prices expected from the carrier. It's likely to be expensive. For what to expect, Federal Drive host Tom Temin spoke with the policy vice president at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, John Hatton. John, let's talk about the impending premium increases for federal long-term care insurance. I mean, that whole industry is a little bit dubious right now, not just in the federal market, but generally. Is it the premiums going to keep going up? Where are they now? What's been happening? And is there really a future for the whole idea? Well, that's a good question. Just to start with where the federal long-term care insurance program is, they've been operating on seven-year master contracts between OPM and the insurer, John Hancock, that will allow premiums to go up every seven years. And they have enrollees, when they enrolled in the program, were told that these were the premiums that they hope to stay stable. Now, they can go up on a class basis to ensure the solvency of the fund, but there's that kind of fine print contractual language, but it's gone up to such a degree that it's hard to think any reasonable person could have predicted such a high premium increase. And so this newest contract renewal started in May. Enrollees are going to start receiving letters indicating their premium increases this week, the week of September 11th. And then they will have 60 days to make choices of whether to accept that premium increase or to take some reduced coverage as low as just getting coverage for the amount of premiums they paid. We don't know the total amount. OPM has not released that. They have released that in the past. The last time premiums went up, they went up as high as 126% and 83% on average. So expecting another huge premium increase, which is going to be very difficult for people to accept. 83% was the average. Last time. So we don't know. This time we have no numbers on the amount. I generally think that if they're not releasing the numbers, that's a bad sign for how high it will be. And so we'll have to see and get it based on anecdotal reports from our members, kind of the range of what the premium increases are going to be. So I think you're right when you say this has happened in other long-term care plans. There's not a lot of group long-term care insurance. You know, there's CalPERS. I think there was one in Minnesota. They've experienced similar high premium increases. If you purchased a private sector plan that's just long-term care insurance, those have also had premium increases. One of the things that kind of came out in a study of this program compared to the private sector alternatives, there's a couple of things that are unique that I think are bothersome, which is one, they take into account the investment returns or lack thereof of the insurer when setting these premiums, and they still have this guaranteed profit structure. Whereas in the private sector, 
those plans were on the hook for potential losses in a greater way, I think, than the insurer has been insulated from them here. And for them to still be having some guaranteed profit while these premiums continue to go up and up, I think it's becoming harder and harder for enrollees to accept, especially when these are guaranteed renewable contracts. So I think taking a look at that and what the justification is for these continued profits with these high premium increases is something we'd like to see. Yeah, I guess really the dynamic here is that unlike house insurance or something, a tiny percentage of houses are lost by fire or flood. And so right. the profile is known of you know what's going to happen. In right. insurance, probably a much higher percentage of the population is getting to the point where they need long-term care insurance. And so you have instead of a premium to payout ratio of maybe a million to one or 100,000 right. to one, it's maybe 10 to one. It's a little bit more of an investment and a little bit more similar to life insurance, particularly whole life insurance. Now, whole life insurance you're going to collect on, right? You know, and long-term care, I, th- I think the percentage is around 50%. So it's not quite there, but it is a little bit more of an investment and protection of your assets for your heirs as compared to let's plan sure. for the contingency that you may have this eventuality when it's very likely you will. So it's just turned out that, look, it's still a very valuable coverage. It's still something everybody should be planning for and have something in the works. But I think what's difficult for Feltsup enrollees is, well, they were planning, they did put the money away, and now it's either unaffordable to continue paying these premiums or they're left with coverage that they feel is inadequate for what their needs are going to be. And so if people were overinsured already, then you know, maybe they can reduce those premiums or keep the premiums flat and keep lower coverage. But again, they're still worse off in this situation. Also, the coverage that is the benefit of these plans is also going down. They used to cover as long as you needed the care, you were insured for it. Now it's 36 months maximum or 24 months maximum. The idea is the insurance company presumes you'll say goodbye permanently instead of running up seven yeah, years of insurance. Newly offered coverage and newly offered coverage has been suspended in Feltzip, but for outside of Feltzip, you'd have that. People will have the choice of whether to take these reduced coverage. So if they may have this choice to take the increased premiums, but keep the same higher coverage. So there's not a force in change of coverage for individuals here, but they may just be paying astronomical amounts and premiums for that coverage that's no longer being offered to people newly now. So people aren't going to be forced to say, take less coverage, it's just they might be paying a lot more for it. So you really have to do a calculus. If you spend 20 yeah. years paying a monthly premium, which turns out to be equal to the 24-month payment you would otherwise have for long-term care, then you're nowhere. (laughs) Right, right. And so I think people have this coverage, and I think that's another frustrating part. They're a little bit locked in. They can't just take their money back and say invest it somewhere else or go back and invest it differently. But they may have a, a value in their coverage right now that is worth a lot. And so they'll want to keep it. So figuring out what is the best way to keep this coverage or some percentage of this coverage for them, and then pairing it with other planning for their long-term care. And, you know, it, taking a fresh look at, do I really need this total level of coverage or can I combine the long-term care insurance coverage with my annuity, with my savings to get to a point that I am secure in that end of my retirement? Well, we'll just have to see what those premiums look like when they come out, and uh, yeah. maybe OPM hasn't revealed them because they know how bad it's going to be. That's my guess, but uh, I won't put words in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of OPM, then we are looking at all sorts of lurid possibilities for the operation of the government over the 
interstice between September 30th and October <laughs> 1st this year. And you got the idea maybe this could actually affect the retirement services, which OPM struggles to keep afloat as it is. Yeah, well, I think the, the outcome of the ultimate negotiation will implicate retirement services. And is there going to be a flat funding or is there going to be increase or is there actually going to be a decrease? So the House bill would have a decrease in funding for OPM back to 22 levels. The Senate bill would increase funding by 35 million. And specifically, their report language indicates that this should go to improving retirement services, improving IT modernization. Uh, and making sure the rollout of the Postal Service Health Benefits Program is done correctly. And I think those all are and should be the top priorities for OPM. And so our hope is that that Senate bill language and amount of money is authorized to OPM because we're at a stage where it is way past time for them to modernize their systems, particularly for retirement services. Right. But it's not as if they haven't had budget for that in the past. True, true. And I think, you know, there was once where they had a contract for multi-million dollars and it totally failed to modernize the system. And so I think that had led to some backlogs because they had reduced staff in anticipation of that in the early 2010s. And then they solved that problem by just increasing staff and increasing overtime and then, you know, have had this seemingly incremental approach, but there hasn't been that much progress. And they're looking to roll out a pilot of an online retirement application by the end of this year. And if that's successful, hopefully do that government-wide. That's a really good sign for us. I don't think this should be a paper-based application system, even if you're forced to have some paper in the process because you can't digitize all these files at once. But you know, just having an application where, you know, hey, there's a missing document, there's a missing field, and that alerts the person filling out the application before it gets sent over the way kind of we do online applications today, whether it's a, a basic online form or a mortgage application. I think could help the entire process move along better. Uh, you're going to probably have less errors coming from agencies over to OPM. And so I'm hopeful that that could make some improvements. Yeah. Well, if every single new federal employee starting now did everything digitally, golly, in 40 years, it would all be online. <laughs> We'd have no problem when right, everyone right. kind of passes. I think that's the, the long-term view is, is to get all the underlying forms like the SF50 forms in digitized and then integrated but then that's a much harder lift. John Hatton is Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin, there's more to the interview. You can hear the whole thing at 1 p.m. today on FedLife here on Federal News Network. The Defense Department needs to make clearer distinctions between investing in programs that will have limited commercial support and programs that have broader commercial applications. A new report from the RAND Corporation looks at how the Air Force develops and acquires new technologies. Specifically, it looks at the commercial satellite communication industry and commercial space-based positioning, navigation, and timing, or PNT. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talked to RAND's Jonathan Wong about the report's findings. The DOD, and particularly the Air Force, foresaw some concerns about that, about how much reliance are you are willing to put on commercial commercial SATCOM generally, and then some of the new the new proliferated Leo constellations. You know, Starlink being the most prominent example. And in that one, I think we're a little bit more risk tolerant because there is a we we know there's a healthy commercial demand for commercial uh, satellite communications, and so that gives a cushion that we you know we we looked at the market and we saw that. 
DOD is not the biggest customer in uh, in, in using commercial satellite communications. Uh, they're growing. We can talk about that too, uh, if you like. But they're not the biggest uh, biggest ones, and it's quite diversified. And so we felt, and we looked at the financials for the for the firms that are involved, and there's a lot more uh, than in the commercial P&T market. We saw that they had a health. Many of them had fairly healthy uh, healthy business doing things in uh, in geo or meo. And if they really wanted to dive into you know proliferated Leo. Uh, they had the runway to, uh, to to give a crack at that innovation, and if they failed, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the DoD left kind of holding holding the bag, if that makes sense. And that you know that analogy of the DoD being left hold, holding the bag kept popping up over and over again, and it really made us think like you know is is the DoD willing to to be that and to do that? Are they willing to just take the capability and pay uh, and pay for it in the way that it pays for capabilities from the prime contractors now? Should they? It depends on what they're on on how how much they want they want a particular capability. Uh, let's go back to PNT for a second. Um, if the DoD really really needed the sub ten centimeter commercial PNT capabilities that some of these firms are trying to to create and, and get off the ground, and is perfectly willing to be the only customer for it, and they just need that capability because you know for for whatever reason, then yeah, go ahead, go you know the DoD should should go for it. But if it's trying to meet all these kind of uh, strategic goals that it has in tapping into the commercial market, you know, for commercial space, and I would even argue more broadly in defense innovation, then it should really be, I think, cautious about how much it's going to get and temper its expectations about how much it's going to get without a commercial market for uh, for the same technology, because it's going to end up bankrolling any of the research and development that's that's needed. It's not going to tap. It's not going to get the benefit of uh, the kind of fast iteration that you get from the commercial market for different applications. It won't certainly won't get the cost effectiveness because the market will only support a smaller number of, of players. So, you know, kind of long, long answer to, to your short question is uh, it, it. And I wish I had a more decisive one is it, it depends. In, in looking at all of those things, you made some recommendations and you came to some conclusions in your report. I was hoping you could kind of enumerate some of the problems that you see with the acquisition process for Space Force and for Department of Air Force and some of the solutions you see. I know you, you mentioned market intelligence and the acquisition process. Can you go through that a little bit? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, some it's not, uh, <laughs> pardon my choice of words, but some it's not rocket science. Um <laughs> The market intelligence piece is uh, is a bit of a newer one because when we were doing this this analysis, and I'll I'll be quite frank, we we have some economists on staff. Uh, I came from a, a management consulting uh, background for for some time. We did some very basic financial analysis, very basic kind of you know if I was if I were you know this startup and I was trying to build a financial model, what would it look like? And what we were surprised, uh, we were kind of surprised that, that this was not a more prevalent view within the Department of Defense. And that's not that's not to cast, you know, uh, criticism on them. Uh, this is a, a new world uh, when we're really focused not only commercial space services, but across the, across the acquisition community, when we're focused on using commercial technologies in a way that we hadn't before, where we're kind of, you know, setting the requirements, they build it, we buy it. And so I think there's a greater need for that understanding of how markets and firms behave in a non-defense prime world, because defense primes are a a different beast in terms of the way they behave financially. There's a greater need for that that set of instincts, that set of skills 
uh, more broadly across the Department of the Air Force and the Department of Defense. It's not, you know, it's not difficult, but it's it's just a different framework that that I think the acquisition community, the requirements community needs to, the concept development community needs to take a look at. How do they get that? Well, that is that is a tough question. I think there's a, there's a number of ways. We didn't delve into it in the report. I think one way is to make uh, hiring more attractive for folks that have some of this background. I don't think you grow it internally. I think that you know those those are rare rare cases when you do. I think a lot of it comes from folks that have industry experience, have experience starting and and uh, and running uh, running companies, participating in the defense acquisition process at a, at an earlier stage and having a more prominent voice for that. Um, but at the same time, I don't believe it's one of those cases where like some in you know some common commentators really want to burn the whole place down and start all over again. I don't think it's that. I think there's plenty of room and plenty of demand, plenty of need for the what I for lack of better terms, the traditional acquisition process, the traditional capability and uh, and requirements process. I mean, you just look at Ukraine today, and you know we're 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 talking about one five five shells, and those are you know those are not very high tech. Those are those are done through the traditional acquisition process. I've lugged a couple myself over over the years. Um, it is. You know, it it doesn't mean that you that you take apart the entire acquisition system. You just have to be open uh, to this part of it that is going to be more involved in the commercial, that's more intertwined in the uh, in the commercial sector. With regard to the other recommendations, um, uh, contracting capabilities. Once you want to go into this, there's got to be a lot more uh, flexibility. Uh, or or the potential for flexibility in how the department writes uh, contracts for these firms because it's going to because their services because they're a little bit different than the traditional things where you bought you know you buy the capability outright um i think that there's a lot of room to grow for that and that goes i mean that's kind of goes hand in hand with the department's increasing increasing usage of other transaction authorities otas we did some previous research that really delved into how the contracting force is dealing with the demand for greater uh, use of OTAs. If you can kind of imagine your typical contracting officer follows the federal acquisition regulation, and it's almost like it's kind of modular. You have certain modules of terms and conditions that are not boilerplate, but kind of standard. And you use that you use that playbook. I think of when you use an OTA, you you need what we call the varsity level of contracting officers that are able to negotiate directly with the firms, understand what their needs are, understand what the government's best interests are, and then adeptly create, you know, without the kind of playbook, without the framework of the federal acquisition regulation, create the right terms and conditions uh, to make it to make it happen. That's Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talking to the Rand Corporation's Jonathan Wong. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, X, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.